Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase in the field of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves from your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. The word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Nicole, for reading that, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Davis Mooney, and uh, as Eric said, I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central Weston Church, and one of the privileges of being an intern is that I get to preach every once in a while, so it's an honor to uh, be here with you today and to, to share this wonderful passage with you. And when Eric was asking me to preach on uh, New Year's Eve, I wasn't quite sure what to preach on. But I started kind of thinking about this, this theme of newness that we're all kind of thinking about this time of year. And I was reminded of Ezekiel 36 and the beautiful newness that we see in this passage. And so I'm excited to share it with you today. But before we do, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time of worship on a cold Sunday morning. We thank you that we can gather together and uh, sing songs of praise to you and hear your word, Lord. We pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would open my mouth. I am not adequate to the, text, to the task of preaching your word, Lord, but I pray that you would speak through me. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2010, biologist Franz de Waal wrote an article in the New York Times, and it was called Morals Without God with a question mark. And Dr. DeWall was asking the question, is it possible to live a good moral life without God? Is a world in which God did not exist, would, would that be a good world? And ultimately, Dr. DeWall wants to believe that humans can create a world uh, free of evil and pain on their own. And they can do that by just living with the morality that's already inside of them. But he's actually, he's quite respectful of Christianity as he goes through this article, and he's asking if we can have morals without God. Here's what he says. 
He says, even the staunchest atheist growing up in Western society cannot avoid having absorbed the basic tenets of Christian morality. Our societies are steeped in it. Everything we have accomplished over the centuries developed either hand-in-hand with or in opposition to religion, but never separately. It is impossible to know what morality would look like without religion. So he's highly respectful of Christianity, but ultimately he says that religion serves to remind us of the moralism that is already inside ourselves. And I think that this is a narrative that many of us have heard, that religion is a good thing as long as it helps us to be a better person and as long as it uh, doesn't impose on someone else's beliefs. But ultimately, society set wants to believe that the world can and will be a good place if humans just live by the moralism that is already inside of themselves. And of course, the desire for the world to be a good, morally ordered place is a wonderful desire, <clears throat> excuse me, and one that we all share. But I believe that the passage that we're going to explore today shows us that we don't just need moralism and we don't just need religion. We need new hearts. This passage in Ezekiel shows us that we don't just need, uh, excuse me, this passage in Ezekiel shows us that humans are in need of someone external to themselves to come and to save them. And I believe that we need to hear this passage today if we're going to become agents of change in the world and create the, cause the world to become the place that God created it to be. So Ezekiel is a prophet, and a prophet is someone who speaks God's words on God's behalf. And Ezekiel was doing this, speaking God's words on his behalf, between 590 and 570 BC to the nation of Israel, who, because of their sin and because of their turning from God, had been sent into exile by the Babylonians, and they were taken far from their homeland. So why do we need to hear these words of a prophet from two and a half thousand years ago? I think there are two reasons. The first reason is that this passage is extremely realistic about our sin or our disobedience to God and humanity's need of God's free grace. And that is just as true for us as it was for the ancient Israelites two and a half thousand years ago. Now, Eric does a fantastic job of defining grace, but I want to give a crack at it too. (laughs) So grace is not only not getting the bad thing that we do deserve, but getting the good thing that we don't deserve. So instead of uh, punishment and discipline, we get blessing and favor. And grace is all over this passage. Chris Wright, one of my favorite commentators on this passage, says about this, uh, these verses, he says, As it was for Israel in exile, so it is for us and for all people. We have to hear and accept the bad news about the reality of our sin and the terribleness of God's just reaction to it before we can respond with joy and gratitude to the good news of God's incredible mercy, grace, and purposes for ourselves and for his world. So the second reason that we need to hear this passage is because of the nature nature of prophecy. We'll see that God makes promises all over this passage. And these promises are fulfilled on three different horizons. So the first horizon is that some of these promises are fulfilled within the lives of the original hearers, the ancient Israelites. The second horizon is that some of the promises are fulfilled when Jesus Christ, God's Son, who takes on flesh, comes down to the earth, dies on the cross, and saves us from our sins. And then the third horizon is the end of time when Christ returns and the world will be the place that he created it to be. So we live in between that second and that third horizon. We've seen how some of these promises have been fulfilled, and we wait to see how some of them will be fulfilled. 
So as I've said earlier, Israel had abandoned their relationship with God. They had turned uh, to lives of sin and had abandoned their relationship. And as they were in exile, there was nothing that they could do to restore that relationship. And this was after years of God's mercy and patience and warning to them. But they, they had ignored those warnings and had not lived the way that he had called them to live. Their sin was a problem and they needed help. And I believe that just like Israel, we are a fallen people who have no means by which to save ourselves. And this doesn't mean that, our, that everything that we do is evil and sinful, but it does mean that we need something, someone external to us to come and save us. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to answer three questions. We're going to see what is the problem, how does God graciously solve that problem, and what is the result of God's solution in our lives. So let's look at verse 22 and 23 as we answer the first question, uh, what is the problem? And the main issue in these verses, God says, is that the Israelites have profaned his name among the nations. It's a little bit of a strange phrase. It's not language that we use all the time. So what does that mean? Well, I think that having a look, a brief look at Israel's history will help us to understand this. So back in Genesis, which Eric just finished a a series of sermons on, uh, God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham that he'll have descendants as numerous as the stars and a land for them to live in. And this is so that they will be a blessing to the surrounding nations and show them God's love. So hundreds of years later, this happens. God rescues his people out of slavery and places them into the land that he promised them uh, so that they will be a blessing to the nations. But pretty quickly, they turn to sin, and they stop living the way that God uh, wants them to live. And so over hundreds of years, they abandon their relationship with God. And the result of that is that they're sent into exile at the the hands of the Babylonians. It's discipline for their sin and for their rebellion. And that's the problem. As they're sent into exile, during that time, the defeat of a nation meant the defeat of a nation's God. And so the the surrounding nations, when they see Israel going into Babylon, God actually kind of tells Ezekiel what those nations are saying in verse 20, which is just above this passage. He says, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. So the surrounding nations are looking at Israel, and they're, they're asking as they walk into exile, is Israel's God not able to defend his people, or is he just not a good God? The exile creates a, a, a dilemma. But this is all a result of Israel's sin. As we've said, the exile was disciplined for their sin. Their exile was fully deserved. But then God comes, and he he sends Ezekiel, and he says that God is about to act. And he says that it's it's not for their sake, but it's for the sake of his name. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Israel has done nothing to deserve the gracious act of salvation that God is about to do. It's so that the nations will see that he is a good God. God is going to untangle this dilemma that the Israelites have caused for him. And it's so that the, nation, the surrounding nations will see his, greatest, his grace and his power. This passage is extremely realistic about our sinful nature and the discipline that our sin deserves. The Israelites had no means by which to save themselves. And so God sends a messenger to say, this is all a result of your sin, but I am about to act. I am about to rescue you. This, this passage calls us to be realistic about our sinful nature, the punishment that we deserve, and that we need help. One of my favorite illustrations of this is uh, actually from Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, which uh, maybe uh, Eric will use in his upcoming sermon series. Uh, but in that book... Uh, Keller talks about G.K. Chesterton, who was a a British theologian and a Christian thinker. Uh, And 
soon after World War I, which kind of shocked the world with the death and destruction that it caused, the British newspaper, The Times, asked a bunch of philosophers and theologians to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? So Chesterton wrote back to them, and here's what he said. He simply responded, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. So what was Chesterton saying? Was this some sort of depressed, self-loathing, I'm what's wrong with the world? No. Chesterton understood that the same desire for power, control, and wealth that had started World War I was at work inside of him. He was realistic about his sinful nature. And this passage shows us that we also are called to be realistic about our sinful nature, that we are a fallen people who choose other things over God. Like the Israelites, without God's intervention, we would just go on sinning, thinking that we can find happiness and fulfillment all on our own. And I think that this is why humanistic ideals, which say that, the, that humans can create a good and moral world all on, our, all on our own, are beautiful, wonderful desires that just don't go far enough. Chesterton, of course, was appalled by World War I, and of course he desired for a renewed and a, and a good uh, world. But he also understood that humans can't, this make, can't make this happen on our own. Sin has affected us extremely deeply, deeply, and it's broken our relationship with God. The Israelites were sent into exile. It's broken our relationship to God, and it, God, it, that, that relationship is the only place that we can truly find happiness and fulfillment. So this passage calls us to understand that our sin dishonors God and it profanes his name. We cannot save ourselves, and we must look to him for the salvation which only he can give. And we see that in these next few verses, verses 24 through 30. We, we've seen what is the problem, and now we see how God begins to act in the lives of the Israelites. We've seen that the Israelites were sinful and that they had abandoned relationship with God and received discipline for them. But this is where God comes to them, and he begins to act. And I love these verses. These are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, 24 through 30. They show God's extreme commitment to his sinful people who he loves dearly. One commentator calls these verses a wholesale transformation of the nation of Israel. It's beautiful. So let's walk through some of these promises together. First, God promises that the Israelites will return from exile. He promises that they will no longer be captives to the Babylonians, and he will take them and he will place them back in the land that he had originally promised them. He will give them back their homes. This is music to the Israelites' ears. And this actually happens just 30 years later. So King Cyrus of the Persians comes and he defeats the Babylonians. And when he does, he sets all of the captives free. He says, go home, you can return back to your homelands. And so the Israelites are able to return back to their original land. Next, God says that he will remove their hearts of stone, that he will place a heart of flesh in them, and that he will put his spirit within them. This is the climax of the whole passage. I love this. God, our, the Israelites' hearts had become calloused through their sin and through their turning from God, and God knew this. So what he does is he comes and he performs surgery. He performs, it's, it's a heart transplant. It's like the, the first heart transplant. He removes what has made them dead, and he gives them life. And as he does so, he renews their humanity. And then he comes and he puts his spirit within them. He places his spirit within them so that they will walk in his ways and walk in obedience to him. It's, just, it's a beautiful picture of transformation. Now, sometimes when we think of our hearts and our spirits, we, we, sometimes we think of them as the same thing. But the Israelites actually would have understood the difference between hearts and spirits. 
For them, their heart was a little bit more surface level. It was a little bit more where their, their will or their thoughts or their kind of day-to-day desires were. But the spirit was something deeper. The spirit is where all of your hopes and your aspirations come from, all of your deep desires. And so this transformation is on multiple levels. God is coming to his people, and he's transforming the deepest, their deepest desires and reorienting them towards him. So next, God comes, and he renews his relationship with them. This also would have been music to the Israelites' ears. He comes and he promises them, you shall, be my, you shall be my people and I will be your God. So once he's come and he's placed them back in the promised land, he's taken out their hearts of stones, giving them new hearts and putting his spirit within them, then he renews his relationship with them. He, and essentially what he's doing here is he's renewing his marriage vows to his people. They've turned from him in pretty heinous adultery multiple times. But God comes to them and says, I am binding myself in relationship to you once again. It's a beautiful picture. They abandoned relationship with him, but he graciously comes to them and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then finally, God promises abundance. He comes to them and he says, that famine that you've experienced, I'm giving you the exact opposite of that you will experience abundance. And it's because of God's renewal, they will be blessed with prosperity. And this prosperity, though, we have to note, it's agricultural. It has to do with the land. It's all about the land producing and bringing forth its abundance. So as God places his people back in the promised land, the land that they rec- they, they, he called them to live in, even the land on which they live will experience blessing. And as God blesses his people with relationship, the land on which they live will will function the way that it was created to and bring forth its good fruits. So it's clear from these verses that God promises radical change. It's a change that Israel cannot bring about on its own. It is an act of God's free grace. But this radical change, it requires removal, as we saw. God takes that that which has been hardened and calloused uh, and is dead through sin and replaces it with true humanity guided through his spirit. God is performing a gracious heart surgery in the lives of his people. Another one of my favorite illustrations about this this surgery is from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Uh, You may have heard this illustration. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's wonderful. It, It shows this transformation really well. So let me read it to you. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I love that. When God comes, he transforms. Sometimes God's renewal and his change in our lives hurts. We don't know what he's doing, but God knows that it's necessary. God comes and he takes out the broken parts and he puts in the new, and it's because he intends to dwell in us through his spirit. He intends to bind himself in relationship to us. So how do, we, how do we apply this? Well, the next point is actually largely application, but I do think there are a few things that we can say here. I believe that this shows us that we are called to understand that, is, understand that our salvation is a miraculous act of God's free grace. God doesn't say, you are sinful, and I will wait until you change your ways until I come and bless you. 
No. God knows our sin, and he comes and he acts, graciously acts in our lives, and he removes that sin from us. And as he does so, we are called to be receptive to the heart surgery and the transformation that he is doing in our lives. Now, this is, this is a great place to say, if you're here today and, and don't know the Lord, don't know God, uh, I encourage you to look to him and invite him to do that surgery in your life. Uh, as we saw from Lewis, that surgery may hurt at times, and you may wonder what in the world God is doing. But I encourage you to look to him, to, knowing that it is only through him and his gracious love for you that you can be saved. But for those of us, for those of you who have been renewed by God, who have been be- given a heart of flesh and given, have his spirit within you, this passage shows us that we're called to live as God's people. And we'll see what that looks like in just a minute. But this passage shows us that we are God's people and we're called to live that way. And we've seen that that doesn't earn his relationship with us, but it is a natural response of the gracious action that he does in our lives. So we've seen what is the problem, and we've seen how God graciously comes and he solves that problem. So what are the implications of that? What is the result of God's gracious renewal in our lives? Well, let's have a look at verse 31 and 32, and keep in mind 23, verse 23 as we answer this question. And we see here that the result of God's action is that the Israelites will live as God's people. And I think we see three implications of that in this passage, what it means for the Israelites to, to live as God's people. First, living as God's people means being obedient, obedient to God's statutes and rules. We saw in verse 27 that that is the result of the infusion of God's Spirit, when the Spirit dwells in us and empowers us to walk in His ways, to be obedient to the, the rules and statutes that He calls the Israelites to live by. Now, this may sound a little bit restrictive to us, especially in our modern culture, which really highly values what, what we kind of think of as freedom. But actually what God is doing here uh, is, is in instructing the Israelites to walk in his ways, to walk in his rules and statutes. What he's actually doing is he's freeing them. Think about it. We've seen that it's because of their sin, their turning from God, and their abandoning of relationship uh, with God that the Israelites had been sent into exile. It was because of their sin that they were led into bondage by the Babylonians. And their sin was bondage. But God comes to them, and he calls them to live in a way that leads to freedom, and he empowers them to do that through his Spirit. Now, the second result of living as God's people is shame at sin for the purpose of rejoicing at grace. And we see this in verse 31 and 32, which can be a little bit difficult to hear. Uh, As uh, Nicole was reading them, it, it sounds like God is very angry. But actually what God is doing there is he's reminding the Israelites that their sin was heinous and that they should remember the ugliness of their sin after he has acted in their lives. And I think, again, Chris Wright sums sums these verses up really, really well. Let me read a quote to you uh, from him. He says, Verse 32 can be twisted to sound as though God's forgiveness is reluctant and self-interested, while all that is left to humans is shame and disgrace. The truly forgiven sinner, however, has no difficulty responding positively to its truth. The only grounds on which he or she could plead for forgiveness in the first place is the character of God as loving, faithful, and consistent to his gracious covenant promises. So in verse 31 and verse 32, it highlights the fact that Israel was trapped in their sin and that they should be ashamed of their sin, but yet God graciously comes and he remains true to his promises. And finally, the result of God's action in the lives of the Israelites is a renewed mission for his people to bless the nations. 
And we saw this in verse 23. God comes to them and he says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God loves the Israelites, and that's why he's acting in their lives. But ultimately, he's acting in their lives because it's so that the nations will know that he is God Almighty. The, the, the surrounding nations had laughed when Israel was sent into exile, but they will see God's glory when Israel is restored. So as God brings his, his people back into the promised land, the nations will see that God has not abandoned them. And as God's people live in obedience to his ways, the surrounding nations will see that God's people are set apart. And as God's people reflect, receive and reflect God's grace, they will serve as a blessing to the surrounding nations. These verses reminded me of the life of Louis Zamperini, who uh, was the, his life was the subject of a recent book and a movie called Unbroken. You may have either read the book or seen the movie. But the book especially focuses on Louis' difficult childhood and how he overcame those difficulties and even became an Olympic runner in the Berlin Olympics. And then when World War II uh, broke out, he enlisted in the Air Force and served on the crew of a bomber that was shot down over the Pacific. And he survived this wreck and even survived 47 days at sea until he was rescued by the Japanese Navy, but then was sent into a prisoner of war camp and and survived two years of being beaten, mistreated, and tortured in a Japanese POW camp. Well, that's, that's really the subject of the book and the movie. But after he returned home, he got married, and uh, because of what had happened to him during the war, he started having these severe nightmares and even fell into some pretty deep alcoholism. So much so that just three years into their marriage, his new wife uh, began seeking a divorce from him. Until uh, one summer, Billy Graham came to preach in Los Angeles where where they were living, and his wife went to go hear Billy Graham preach. And she came home, and she said, Louis, I'm not going to divorce you but I want you to go hear Billy Graham preach. And he reluctantly accepted. So what he said was, I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promises I'd made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame. Louis understood his sinful nature and he also understood God's free grace in his life. And so the way that he responded to that was by seeking to serve the Lord uh, as, as much as he could and sharing God's grace and God's love with as many of the people that, that, as he met. He even traveled over to Japan multiple times trying to find as many of the prison guards as he could who had beaten him and tortured him during the war to tell them that he had forgiven them, that because he had received God's grace and God's mercy, he could go and forgive them. The Lord had acted in Louis' life, and he responded with obedience, rejoicing, and seeking to bless others with the love of God that he had received. And So just like God called the Israelites, the result of God's gracious action in our lives is that we are called to live as God's people. And this looks largely the same for us as it did for the Israelites, but with one difference. I said it a little bit earlier. The difference is that we've seen these promises fulfilled. So when God comes and he graciously saves us through his son, Jesus Christ, he empowers us for obedience to his ways. As we know the saving work that God has done on our behalf, we can turn to him and walk in his ways, walk in the ways that he calls us to walk. He takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, and and, and puts his spirit in us, and so we can walk in his ways. 
Also, when God comes and graciously saves us through his son, we are called to look back on our sin with shame so that we can remember God's mercy and rejoice in it. I have a covenant professor who, uh, at one point this semester in one of our classes, he said, Christians cannot live under the motto, no regrets. I'm called to look on the foolish things that I've done in my life, all of the sin that I've done in my life, and be ashamed of it and feel guilty about it. But that's not at all what I'm called to do. As we look on our sin with shame, we, are, we can rejoice in the fact that that sin no longer defines us. Jesus has wiped it away. We've seen the bondage of our sin. We've seen the ways that it tries to control us and even leads to death. But we're called to rejoice when we're set free through the Spirit. We've seen the ugliness of our sin. And I think that's one of the many ways that we can see the wonderful mercy of God's love for us. And finally, when God comes and graciously saves us through his son, we are called to the mission of sharing his love with the nations. So as we saw with the Israelites, God saves them because he loves them. And God saves us because he loves us. But ultimately, we must also remember that salvation is for his sake. As saved people, as people who understand the radical transformation that he has done in our lives, he calls us to bless others with that. He calls us to live as his people in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. He calls us to be his people and to be obedient to his ways so that others will see the, the blessing uh, of walking in, with the Lord and his, his radical transformation in our lives. And so we're also we're called to join in the work of transforming our broken society but knowing that it is only through God's love for us and, and as God works in and through us that it, the nations will be blessed. So we've seen in this passage, we've seen three things. We've seen what is the problem, we've seen how God graciously solves the problem, and we've seen our, how we're called to respond to that problem. We've seen that it is because God graciously gives us new hearts and infuses his spirit within us that we are called to walk in his ways as God's people. And I've mentioned earlier that these promises are all fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus Christ. And I've also mentioned that it's in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who takes on flesh and comes to the world, that we are saved. Well, how is this? Well, as we conclude, I want to look at a passage where Jesus actually taught from uh, this passage, Ezekiel 36. It's in John 3, 1 through 14. And there, Nicodemus, who's a rabbi, uh, a Jewish teacher who would have known the Old Testament very well, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus how he's able to do the miraculous things that he's doing. And I I want to read to you three verses from that passage, how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What Jesus is talking about there is the, the sprinkling of clean water and the, the God infusing his spirit in, in his people that we saw in Ezekiel 36. And Jesus comes and he says that it is only through him that all of those promises are fulfilled. Jesus comes and he says that he came to make all of this happen. That it is through him that we are cleansed of our sins, that we receive a new heart and a new spirit, and that we're empowered to walk in God's ways. Jesus, the Son of God, knew that his people were sinful and had no means by which to save themselves but he comes and he acts in our lives he comes to wash them and to put his spirit within us and the radical transformation that takes place he calls it a new birth it's beautiful now how does jesus do all of this 
Well, later on in the passage, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is referring to there is that he had to die on the cross, taking on the full punishment of the sin that we deserve. And that full punishment was full and total exile from God the Father. Jesus takes that on so that we can be brought back into full relationship with God the Father. And now, because of the death and resurrection of his son, God is able to say, you are my people and I am your God. Now, once again, if you're not a Christian here today, I would encourage you, if you haven't put your faith in him, I would encourage you to meditate on these words and to look to him in faith. But if you are a believer here today, I encourage you that we are called to walk as God's people. We're called, if we know the gracious act of God in our life, we can and should desire to be agents of change in the world. But as we do so, we must also remember that it is only when God graciously puts his spirit within us, only through the love of his son, Jesus Christ, that we can become renewed agents of change in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you uh, for this beautiful passage. Um, we thank you that you come to us, even though there's no, no way that we can be free of the, the bondage of sin. You come to us and you free us of that. You sprinkle clean water on us. You take out our hearts of stone. You give us new hearts and you put your spirit within us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to, to live into that, to walk in that, knowing your grace and your mercy in our lives through your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would respond to it in thanksgiving and obedience and praise, Lord. We praise you and thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.